Today's uh, scriptures from Mark chapter 3. It's uh, verses 1 through 6. And it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. I've been um, trembling for weeks in preparation for this sermon. Um, You guys can see if uh, this is one of those where if I say one thing, I blow up over here. (laughs) If I say one thing, I'll blow up this way. And you guys can possibly watch me blow up right up here. Boom. All right. Um, In all seriousness, this is a highly charged and difficult message. And I hope you can feel that I'm, I'm in no way trying to teach any kind of partisan position. All right. That isn't my job. Uh, there are some p- pastors who think because they know something about the Bible, they can go around telling everybody about everything else, which I think is just plain wrong, right? We know about the Bible, and we have to try to apply it to life, but that doesn't mean we know everything about everything else, certainly not about politics. I certainly have my views about politics, but that's not what I'm trying to teach you today. I have to teach you the Bible. What is Jesus' view? It's in this passage. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult portion. And um, you know, for those of you who are perceptive, I preached this passage last week, and it was a challenging message about how we have to think differently about our traditions about how we practice our faith. Right? But that's um, also in this passage about how um, religion is politicized, politics is religionized, and nothing comes out good from that. Right? Um, that both things get corrupted. The politics get corrupted and um, faith and religious practice gets corrupted. And there's no way you could talk about that subject without the big fat elephant in all of America. Right now, it's, more, it's probably more terrible than it's ever been in terms of this subject about religion and politics meshes in our society, right? And so um, I am gonna humbly trying to offer you some things which I hope will be relevant from the scripture into, into this context today. And so, three parts. Part one, power and politics and religion. Power and politics in religion. Part two, um, the gospel over our dysfunctional, politicized American religions. You heard me say that? The gospel over our dysfunctional, politicized American religions. I have some stuff to say about why I think our politics are so especially ugly, and it has something to do with the way we are approaching religion. And um, I'll close by talking about the gospel in a different way than maybe you're a little bit used to, which is I'm going to call it the good news of the king and his kingdom. We need a king. And we need a kingdom that, as we sang in our service today, 
that is above all kingdoms, all right? Certainly above all political kingdoms. The good news of the king and his kingdom. Um, let's get into it. Um, where is it in this text? Um, it's in this text in that last verse. You can see it in verse 4 where um, Jesus is going to use, he actually goes out of his way to, on the Sabbath to do something that certain groups, certain theological groups, but they're also politicized groups that they disapprove of, which is that he's going to do a piece of work on that, which is to heal someone. And he's going out of his way. That's an offensive thing in terms of their theology. And it's also he as a figure is disruptive to the power structure that's going on. That's what's happening. And Jesus knows that this is their agenda. He's upset at them. And you can see it. Everybody thinks Jesus is nice, but it says very explicitly in verse 4, he's angry. And he's angry at what he perceives to be their hardness of heart. And when you get to verse, he then heals this man. You get to verse 6, and it tells you this very, this, uh, this kind of passage that man, many of us don't pay attention. It says, the Pharisees and the Herodians, um, they started to conspire with each other. And then they started thinking about how to destroy him. Now, um, I'm going to give you a little teaching about why I can see that there is politics and, and religion being mixed together. But I want to say a little something to frame this discussion before I tell you a little bit about the Pharisees and the Herodians and their agenda against Jesus and then how it begins to relate to our context today. Um, this is one of the reasons why it's a little bit of a difficult subject in America is because of actually something really smart that we have in America. It's, it's, a, it's ironic. In America, we have this really powerful piece of wisdom, which is the separation of church and state, which is that political power as run by the state should stay. That's, that's one subject. And then how we do things in terms of church and worship, we should keep, that, we should keep these things from meshing with each other. It's impossible, by the way, that these subject matters can't start to mesh with each other. But in America, there's a very smart and wise habit that we try to keep them in two different camps. And by the way, we'll get into this in a little bit, it comes from something that Christians have learned the hard way, literally hundreds of years, because different camps of Christians went to war against each other, and then finally, instead of killing each other, they started studying the Bible and finding out that Jesus himself says that what is unto Caesar should go to Caesar, what is unto God, God. That's from Jesus himself. Not because Christians simply decided, oh, you know, we learned the hard way, which they did, but also maybe there's something from our king which is better than the way we've been doing it. And over time, at least, and it took many hundreds of years, in America we have this. But strangely, what you can't have is you can never separate your values from the culture. You get what I'm saying? Everybody brings values into the culture. Your values, where do you get them from? You have to have some ultimate understanding of where your values come from. You know what that is? That's religion. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in God, you have values from some place that you cannot justify or legitimate without some, honestly, a faith in something. Your faith might be in justice. Your faith might be in, in uh, freedom. But if that is the thing that defines your values, so on the right wing it tends to be freedom, on the left wing it tends to be justice. These are religious values. That's what we're talking about. And so we have an incredible piece of wisdom in our culture, but it's also making us kind of blind. 
that there's no way that our religion and our values can be separated out of the culture, and the things inside of the culture, that is what we fight about in politics. That's exactly the way, that's, it's, it's impossible. Now, in other cultures around the world, they don't try to separate their religion from their politics. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but if you go to another part of the world, and they find out that you're an American, you know what they tend to think you are? They think you're a Christian. I mean, you could be Muslim, you could be a Jew, you could be an atheist, but they think America is a Christian country because in their country, let's say, if, you know, in, this is certainly true in most of the Muslim countries, if you are born in that country and you don't declare that you're a Christian or a Jew, then immediately they just think you're, you're, that you're a citizen of that country, you're a Muslim. And so politics, your political standing in society, and your religion go hand in hand. What has been normal throughout history and through almost all the other cultures is that there, whoever runs the society should also be able to sh impose their values through the power of the government so that the church and the state really are aligned. <laughs> almost every country in the world, they want their church and the state to be aligned. You go to Thailand, it's a Buddhist country. If you're not a Buddhist and you want to be a citizen of Thailand, you are a second-class citizen. That is the way it is. That's the way it has been pretty much throughout all the countries of the world. America is the odd country. In fact, Western European countries and America, we're the odd outliers. So that's one of the things I want to teach you. Just at the beginning, it's, a, it's a, to deal with this subject matter, you have to have some understanding that in ancient Israel, this thing where people are fighting politically about their theology and their practice of religion, that's completely normal. That's completely normal. That people would say, here's what we believe in, and we don't like the way you do Sabbath. And so now we're going to go against you, and then we're going to use our pol politics and weaponize that to, get, to go against you, because now you are an enemy of ours because you're against our values, our practices of religion. And so that's what's happening in the text. That's what's happening in the text. This series is called uh, The Incomparable Jesus. And most everybody tends to think of Jesus as, you know, super kind and loving, because that's, that's uh, I mean, even, even atheist folks know that Jesus is incredibly merciful and kind and loving. But he's more than just kind. He's disruptive. He's offensive. And um, he, he, he does make enemies. And in this particular case, the enemies he's making, they are, they're weaponizing it through their politics. Now, how do you know that? Um, I want to say a couple things about this. Now, let me say a little something about Her Herodians and Pharisees. They have different political positions. This is really interesting, right? And they have, they, on some portions of the Bible, they're probably similar, but they clearly have a difference in their understanding of church and state. That's what distinguished, that was one of the distinguishing factors of Herodians and Pharisees. So both Herodians and Pharisees believe that we should follow the Bible. In their case, what we would today call the Old Testament. Jews would call it the Hebrew Scriptures. And apply, and Israelites should be able to practice their faith. But they had a different understanding of Rome. Herodians were pro-Roman government. That's why they were called Herodians, Herodians, right? Because Herod, Herod is the governing king established by Rome. 
So Herod is a, he, he's, he's at least part Jewish. I, I, I was trying to go through some of the history. The first Herod was like half Jewish. The, this current Herod is probably you know, more than just half Jewish. He's a Jewish guy, yet he's what uh, historians would call a client king. The Rome, Rome is the most powerful entity, and they control the world. And how would they control this area? What they did was they put in, they kind of put in, I mean, if you want to be a little bit more of a mean person about it, if you're against it, you would say he's a stooge. He's just a, a Roman spy. He's going to try to keep the, so if you're against it, and Pharisees would have been against Herod. They believed that Israel should be able to practice their faith with complete independence from Rome. They did not like the Roman government, and they probably did not like Herod. But the Herodians on the opposite side. But this is where they're interested. This is interesting. They both contended for power in society. And the Pharisees probably had more power and influence among the people. They tend to be more middle class, upper middle class. The Herodians were elites. They were wealthy. And they, were cons- they would conspire with Romans to have power and wealth in society. And it worked. But both of them didn't like someone like Jesus upsetting the apple cart. <laughs> they didn't like him saying, here's how you can follow God. <laughs> and then you can see it. Normally these guys are enemies, but now we're going to conspire because we have found a more common enemy. And if we conspiracy in this kind of way, and then they want to destroy him, destroy him, that, that's, that, that means kill him. Hmm. Violence, coercion, that's, that's politics. That's the, that's the ugly underbelly. Politics is coercive power. Governmental power, the things we have to do, not necessarily because we want to do, but especially the government has the power of the sword. The government has the power of violence against us, and we don't always like it. And there are some people today, you know, we're particularly upset about it, about how police handle certain matters. That's the power of violence. And here, that's what's going on in verse 6. That's the subject matter. I want to say a little something about, a couple more things about this before I get to part two of my message here. Um, from a Roman perspective, all right, the Herodians, you would call them the political right. Their favorite, their, they like the status quo of the government. The Pharisees would be more the political left, right? So that's, you know, if you want to say, like, who, you know, they'd be the political right. The, but there's also another group that, you, let's call them even the far left, the radical <laughs> who were especially anti-Roman government, and they were called the zealots, all right? And I want to, make some, I want to point something out here that's very important. Um, you want to see how, how disruptive and how incomparable Jesus is here. Jesus had 12 disciples. And this, is, this comes up in Scripture. Um, Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them is a guy who was named Matthew. You know what his job was? He was a tax collector. He collected money, so he's Jewish. (laughs) How does he make his money? Collecting money from his fellow Jews who hate Romans because the Romans have uh, taken them over. They're an oppressive and wicked government. So the the Jews don't particularly like Romans, but he works for them, and he collects money for them to support the oppressive government, oppressive pagan, bad theology, bad morality government that Jews do not believe in. So you got Matthew, he would be kind of, you know, on the, you know, Herodians might like him. But there was another disciple, his name was Simon. 
Now, there's two Simons in, among the 12. The more famous to Simon is Simon Peter. Most of you know him as Peter because Jesus renames him Peter. He said, Peter means rock, and you know, upon rock, blah, 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 you know, I'm going to build you on your confession of who I am. We're going to build, you're going to become one of the leaders of the church, right? And so Simon Peter is the more famous Peter, but there's a little less famous Peter, but he's very relevant to today. His name is Simon, and in the Bible, they always call him Simon the Zealot. You know what the Zealots believe? They think of, they, he would be, have the view of the Pharisees except on steroids. <laughs> we do not want Romans governing us and telling us how to do our faith. And in fact, they're so wicked, we should be able to kill them. <laughs> if we have to, let's use military, military power and use violence to overthrow, overthrow Rome. From the Roman perspective, Simon the Zealot, he's a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, if it was, was today, <laughs> if it was today, the NSA would follow Simon the Zealot around. <laughs> because Rome, to, to, America is the Rome of today, by the way. You know, the world's great power, multi-ethnic. And we've had some measure of success keeping different religions from, like, killing each other, not always so great, okay? But it's because that's a really difficult thing to do. But Rome was that power. And today the NSA would follow Simon the Zealot, Simon the Terrorist, (laughs) around. Jesus picked both these guys to be his disciples. You get it? He picked someone who would probably be, from a Roman point of view, a right-wing guy, Matthew the tax collector. And then he picked another guy who wouldn't just be sort of on the left-wing guy. He'd be like a super left-wing guy that the government would spy on and would want to put in prison as a terrorist, Simon the Zealot. Jesus said, both of you guys follow me. You know what he's saying? My kingdom and who I am, it's higher than your politics. Put that stuff away. Put that stuff away. I have a greater claim on you. God has a greater claim on you. God has a greater vision for you. God has a greater vision, period. It's a lot more important than those things. And so this is going on in the passage. And when Jesus is offended at the way the religion and the politics, I just want to give you a sense that if you find it troubling today, oh my goodness, this is one of the reasons why Jesus is troubling literally in almost every portion of history, including to Christians. Because Christians want to then politicize or go, we believe in Jesus, but wait a second. We don't like the way you Christians over there want to like handle the politics. And so then they weaponize it. And then guess what? I would say Jesus would be against that. Now, there's no perfect way because there always has to be some way that politics has to intermesh. And I'm not going to try to tell you how that is because, well, that's not my job, right? But today, one of the things I want to tell you is, can we put that on hold and Look at Jesus as above, right? Jesus is above. Well, let's go to part two. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the big elephant in the room, uh, the dysfunctional, politicized American religions. That's what I'm going to call it. Now, just uh, for you younger uh, teenagers, uh, I know this is an easy subject, and I'm, I'm really asking for your, and you may not, it might be over your head. I'm sorry about that, but... Um, you know, maybe you can come back to it in a few years, this message in a few years, okay? It's highly relevant. And, um, and I want to I start, so let me, let me, I have a PowerPoint for you, and um, 
Is it working? Yes. I'm going to give you a quote. Let's, let's, before we get to it, I'm going to give you a quote, a lengthy passage from a brilliant essay that I read uh, a number of weeks ago by um, a writer named Andrew Sullivan. And now Andrew Sullivan um, wrote this piece called America's New Religions. And I want to give you a little background to Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan is really one of the most interesting writers that we have in our, in our culture. Um, he is a, he, his, his skill as a writer is it's really top-notch. Right? But his perspective on our politics is very interesting. Why? Because Andrew Sullivan is gay and, and he's Catholic. And as someone who's gay, he tends to be much more sympathetic to our political left. And he understands their perspective and their values. And as someone who's Catholic, he also understands those people. And he's not just kind of a wishy-washy Catholic. He's, he's a pretty serious Catholic. He's, he, is, he, uh, he, he is sympathetic and understands the people on the political right. Now, a lot more people, the observant Catholics tend to move toward the political right, right? And of course, you know, most of the gay folks in our country, they tend to be on the political left. And he wrote this piece. Now, I think it's a brilliant piece. It is a brilliant essay. And I don't agree with everything in it because, you know, well, I don't usually agree with everything in, in anything I read, except, well, I try to agree with everything in the Bible, but sometimes it bothers me because, honestly, I have to be honest with you, but I'm like, okay, Lord, I need to agree with you, but this is hard, okay? Um, but um, the central thesis that we're going to get at, I'm going to, you know, we're going to read through two portions from Andrew Sullivan. I think it's very, very helpful and relevant to this passage right? and helpful to understand what's going on in America. So let's, uh, so everyone has a religion. It is, in fact, impossible not to have a religion if you are a human being. It's kind of like what I said at the beginning. It's in our genes and has expressed itself in every culture, in every age, including our own secularized husk of a society. That's what he says, including in secular society. By religion, I mean something quite specific, a practice, not a theory, a way of, a way of life that gives meaning. Do you have a way of life that gives meaning? Somewhere along the line, you may not call it religion, but there is a kind of religion, even if you don't go to a church or a temple or a synagogue. A meaning that cannot be defended without recourse to some transcendent value, beyond the world value. Maybe you call it truth, undying truth, or God, or some gods. So that's why I want to put those things in emphasis, which is to say even today's atheists, even today's atheists are expressing an attenuated form of religion. Attenuated means kind of a, truncated or a, a, a kind of like a, um, a, 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 well, a, a clipped form of religion. This is how the essay starts. So their denial of any God, he's talking about atheists, is as absolute as others' faith in God. Isn't that true? Haven't you met people like that? That is true. The denial of God is faith. <laughs> and it's absolute. That's religious. And entails just as much a set of values to live by, including for some daily rituals like meditation, which he says is a form of prayer, which I think is right. 
And he quotes a guy, he says, uh, which I, a very brilliant, another br- a, a really brilliant guy. In his book, The Seven Types of Atheism, philosopher John Gray puts it this way. John Gray, by the way, is a longtime Oxford tenure chair professor of philosophy and religion. This guy's not a lightweight. I've, I've, read this, I've read a piece of this book. It's a terrific book. Seven Types of Atheism. Religion, this is the way he puts it, religion is an attempt to find meaning in events, not a theory that tries to explain the universe. Religion is an attempt to find meaning in events, not a theory that tries to explain the universe. It exists because we humans are the only species so far as we can know who have evolved to know explicitly that one day in the future we will die. And this existential fact requires some of us some way of reconciling us to it while we are alive. This is why human beings are religious. Somehow we know we're going to die, and we need meaning knowing we're going to die. That's a, it's a pretty powerful explanation. And if that's the case, right, is there such a thing as a human being who's not religious? I don't think there is, it. There is such a human being. You're going to have to become like non-human. This is why science cannot replace it, religion. Science does not tell you how to live or what life is about. It can provide hypotheses and tentative explanations, but no ultimate meaning. Wherever you get your meaning from, that's where you're getting your religion. Art can provide an escape from the deadliness of our daily doing, but again, uh, appreciating great art or music is ultimately an act of wonder and contemplation and has almost nothing to say about morality and life. But we all need some guidance on what is right and wrong. What are we supposed to value? What is the meaning of life? That's religion. (laughs) Okay, so let's just stop there for a moment. That's the opening, and I want you to just kind of try to swallow this. As soon as you understand this, that means everybody has some kind of religious commitment. (laughs) And then we take our religious commitment, and then we start to vote with it. (laughs) That means we're taking our religious commitment and we can't help but think about our religious commitment in terms of our politics. There's nothing wrong with that. You know why? Because all human beings have to do that. We all have our values and our religious commitments. Do you don't think Buddhists are going to vote according to Buddhism? Muslims aren't going to vote according to Muslim, um, you know, Islam? Mormons are going to vote according to Mormonism? Of course they are, and they should. And in our country, we believe in the freedom to do so. But... um. I want to talk to you, I want to get this next portion. And this is important here, all right? So this is going to be a little bit of a, it's already a bit of a university lecture, I know. Um, But uh, this is going to, this is important here. Then I want to get into this this next portion, which I think is really what's really insightful from what Andrew Sullivan's saying, right? Liberalism is a set of procedures with an empty center, not a manifestation of truth. Now let's just stop for a moment. What does he mean by this word liberalism? I underlined it. Liberalism, um, in America, we tend to use the word liberal in kind of like, um, in mostly it's like liberal is one side, you know, it's like Democrats are liberal and Republicans are conservative. We tend to think of it as like one set of political values over another set of political values, but that's not how he's using the word here, okay? In Europe, 
they tend to use this word liberal and liberalism in the other definition, and he's using it in this way. Right? Um, Andrew Sullivan is British, and British intellectuals tend to use this word in this more technical fashion. Liberal or liberalism is the political value that individuals are politically protected from the majority imposing or tyrannizing their beliefs and their, and their freedom. Liberalism is a politics of individual liberty that protects them from the majority. Hearing me? And if that's the case, liberalism is not a left or a right issue in America. It's all of America. Almost all of America believes in liberalism. You understand that? You know, like, you know the Republicans believe in it, and the Demo they have some disagreements about how do you do it, but they all believe in liberalism. From the European perspective, all of America believes in liberalism. Right? So here's what he says. Liberalism is a set of procedures with an empty center, not a manifestation of truth, let alone a reconciliation to mortality. But critically, it has long been complemented and supported in America by a religion, by a religion distinctly separate from politics. Distinctly separate from politics. A tamed Christianity that rests in Jesus' formulation on a distinction between God and Caesar. I gave you the text. There's multiple texts, but this is, you know, where in the Gospel of Mark, so I gave you the Mark text, right? Jesus, as, as I already um, said. So he, he gets it right there, that there's a portion of theology that goes back to Jesus. Is Jesus that says, hey, politics, stay over here. Hmm. Let's make sure you focus on God, and he says that this has been going on, this one, Christianity was the dominant religion in America. You know, we could do this. We could try to keep politics over here. But then he says, and this separation of church and state is vital for liberalism. In other words, for the American way of doing government. Because if your ultimate meaning is derived from religion, you have less need of deriving it from politics, or ideology, or trusting entirely in a singular, secular leader. <laughs> Starting to see the relevance? If your meaning comes more from your religion, your faith, then you don't have to start grasping toward politics or a single person to say, hey, we're going to have meaning in life. It's only when your meaning has been secured that you can allow politics to be merely procedural. So what happens when this religious rampart of the entire system is removed or is in trouble or is in declining? That's what's happening in America. The religious rampart of America, that's how he puts it, this kind of tamed Christianity, which has a certain critique of the relationship of religion and politics, when it starts to wane, we have an issue. I think what happens is illiberal politics. You guys know what illiberal politics is? Politics that does not defend the individual's liberty. That does not defend the individual's liberty. Illiberal politics is what starts to arise. The need for meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in and tamed by Christianity, find expression in various 
This is the language he uses, and I think he's right. Political cults. Hmm. Political cults. These political manifestations of religion are new and crude as all new cults have to be. Hmm. That's all that's. If you invent a religion from yesterday, it's going to be crude. It hasn't had time to learn and, you know, been shot at by the world to gain wisdom and application. They haven't been experienced and refined and modeled, okay, by millennia of practice and thought. They're evolving in real time. And like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world religion. All right. All of this is so I can give you this, all right? Now let's look at our politics. We have the cult of Trump on the right. That's what he calls it. It's a political religion cult on the right, a demigod who among the worshipers can do no wrong, (laughs) although he does plenty of wrong. And we have the cult of social justice on the left. A religion whose followers show the same zeal as any born-again evangelical. (laughs) I think he's absolutely right on about that. You ever met a person who just immediately first started following Jesus? They're like, oh, that's super excited. And it's great that they're super excited about it. You ever met a person who just discovered they get woke and they discover social justice? They're super excited about it. They're super excited about it. You know what it is? It's religious energy. That's really interesting that he that's the comparison that he makes. Um, This is where we're at. This is where we're at. Um, I don't think there's really any good guys on the political scene. We've got political cult on the right. And we got political cult on the left, and they all think that they are so righteous. (laughs) And they're going to impose their theology on us through the state. And there's no room to just be human and listen to the other side. (laughs) That's where we're at. (laughs) And I think this Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is angry, that's just something we need to swallow. He's upset. What's the purpose of faith? It's to help the withering. This guy's a withering hand when we practice our faith. It actually should be the purpose of politics, too, to help the withering. Right? Um, These political cults are filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. Okay? Now, I want to offer you a, a couple of wisdom points, and then I'm going to go to the gospel. Right? So um, maybe, maybe you older guys, you probably already know this, but especially I wanted to offer this to you younger. It's not everybody cares about politics, but it's just helpful to know that there is a spectrum. And it generally looks something like this, left-wing liberals, right-wing conservatives, and then moderate left and a moderate right. Right? And it generally, we, this is a terminology that, are, you know, it's, not, it's crude terminology, right? We call it socially liberal versus socially conservative, economically liberal versus economically conservative. 
And then the people in the middle don't exactly line up to these ends, right? The right wing and the left wing, and then the center. Most people probably are in here. So generally, I want to just show you something. This is probably about 15 to 20% of the population. You know that? And this, in all the really responsible surveys, is about 15 to 20% of the population. Most of the people are in here. And they're not always interested in aligning all their political ducks to their faith and so forth. So when we're talking about social, that's usually what we mean is values, our moral values. And the people here tend to be socially, they like the traditional values, which are more in line with the Bible. So over here, by the way, these aren't just evangelical Christians or, or conservative Catholics. Their Orthodox Jews are over here. Mormons are over here. Muslims are over here, right? But they might not be economically conservative. Limited government, less taxes, better business interests, et cetera, that kind of stuff. They might say, we need more welfare. We need to help. The government has to give out more money to help people. Right? That's economically liberal. But so what's happening here, this is the way it is. This is a really important issue. Do you know that, that if one side wins or this side wins, these guys get to control our culture, if these guys get to control our culture? Just to give you a little sense of this, do you know that in a typical presidential election, about 50% of the people vote that can vote? <laughs> Half the country who can vote, votes. Um, if this is roughly about 60%, this is 20 and 20, 10% of the people will get to shape our society, or 10% of the people get to shape your society. This is, so it really, really matters. Yet, so I'm not trying to say politics, it does matter, but, um, you know, this, this is, these are the true beliefs. If, this, if these are the social justice uh, political cult over here, and this is the Trumpian political cult over here, this is, uh, these are the people who are shaping us. And one of the reasons why there's a lot of anger in our society today is this side is being scrambled up. So some of these people are swinging over here, and some of these people are swinging over here, and these are people are angry, and these people are angry. <laughs> these people here are angry that these people are swinging over here, and then these people are angry that these people are swinging over here. <laughs> That's what's going on. It is a mess. You know what we need? We need some other people who would say, politics is not as important because there's something more important. And people with faith. And I do really do think the people of Christ, we could be better, there's a way we could be better neighbors in this time. Really, really need. All of our neighbors, they're being poisoned by political cults and their power agendas, both left and right. And we need some people that's a little bit more ballast, and our ballast can come from Jesus. I want to give you some uh, wisdom points, and then we'll go to the gospel, right? Some gospel kingdom over politics wisdom points, okay? Which come from what the gospel can offer. So the first one. A Christian's identity and belonging derives first and highest from Jesus. I know it should be obvious to say, but I want let's put that out there. Not your political tribe, okay? So please don't think of yourself first as a Republican or a conservative or, or, you know, or a liberal or a Democrat, and then when you meet somebody else, like, you're over there, I'm over here. No, don't do that, please. First think, I belong to Christ. Please. And so let's have a couple of... Um, Subpoints here. So 
some applications. How about love your brothers and sisters in Christ? So if they're a Christian, why don't you love them in Christ first? See them as a Christian first. Embrace them as a Christian first. Before going, wait a second, you're on the other political side. <laughs> Please, first, you know, you're going to be brother and sister with them for all eternity. <laughs> Democrats will be gone. I mean, the Democratic Party might not survive in the next 50 years, or the Republican Party might not survive in the next 50 years. So this is really crazy. Your brother and sister in Christ is going to be your brother and sister in Christ forever. The worth of that, the weight of that is eternal. Political parties are nothing compared to that. That has been won by the blood of Jesus. This is a really, really important point. And I want to say a little something about this, one other point. This is re it really grieves my heart. Do you know that most white American evangelicals are on the political right? Do you know that most black American evangelicals are on the political left? They tend to be Democrats. Do you know that most black Christians are Democrats? Do you know that most white Christians are Republicans? That is got to make Jesus unhappy. <laughs> you get this passage? Come on. He's like saying, why don't you be mine first? <laughs> and then talk humbly with each other. And maybe we can offer something better to America than this. <laughs> um, let's do another uh, corollary. The advancement of the reign of Christ in our lives is higher and more important than if our political camp wins or loses in the temporal here and now. Whatever the Republicans win, they'll probably lose in the next election. And then whatever the Democrats win, they'll probably lose. They're going to be like, we won, but then you lose tomorrow. <laughs> right? When Obama got in power there, they were so happy, but they are so sad now. And guess what? It'll just all flip around tomorrow. But Jesus, when he advances, he advances. Because hearts are transformed forever. So please, let's think about that more. All right, let's go to a second one. Seek mercy and justice for the withering. Someone came in with a withering hand in our midst, more than winning when it comes to acquiring power for your side. You know, you don't need to have a lot of power to love the withering. Did Jesus have power? He didn't have power, and yet he's transformed the world when he had no power. So let's, let's do what his kingdom cares about. It tends to win respect from all camps. It really does. Treat all our neighbors first as people, not as political opponents. First as people, not as political opponents. Um, you know, recently, um, you know, uh, we were, we're, you know, we're a church plant. We're looking for a new, new, new home. Um, I, I talked to this woman who is a pastor, and I think she's a lesbian, right? She's really liberal in her politics. And, um, you know, a lot of those folks tend to dislike people who have this more, like, you know, um, orthodox doctrine of the Bible. And yet she was a really wonderful person. <laughs> she was so sweet, so kind, so gentle. And, you know, it's like, let's not think about this politics. Let's first just be people. Let's be people. Everybody, just please, can we just calm down? Everybody's first human. 
before being political. The, the fact that the political has kind of like arisen to be the identity and belonging marker in our culture, I think that is a really horrible thing. So first, let's treat our neighbors as people and remember their humanity. One more, um, and before I give you the gospel. Be humble and fear God that he might anger against you. He might be upset. As hard-hearted when your religious morality becomes such a righteous cause that it tramples concern for the withered. So I hope that our church never forgets this. And uh, if I, as a leader, please call me to the mat. Any of our leaders, any of the elders that we ever, that we ever start to get more thinking about politics than just how the gospel can love the withering in our society. Okay, um, let me close my message by talking about this. I know there's a big mouthful today. Um, I want to close with this. We sang the song, which I loved. Um, it moved me. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones. You know, you may not think of the, you think of the gospel as something primarily as something that's going to like, you know, touch your heart and something about your, you know, difficulty in relationship with God. But have you ever thought about what it could do for our neighbors? How tremendously important that Jesus is a king. And he's bringing a new kingdom. The gospel of Mark opens up with says, the gospel of God, the good news of God, is proclaimed to a kingdom. And who is it? The king. What kind of a king do we have? This kind of a king. Who cares less about power, but more about justice and merciful. And he's wise He's filled with grace. He never uses his deceit. He never goes, I I need to raise a lot of money and then like use it to impose power, which is the complete normal thing in the world. That's not how he does things. And he came to serve at great cost to himself. His kingdom is for those who are withering, withering hands, as I said last week. Most people, you have something far worse than a withering hand, withering hearts withering lives. And he came to do a lot better than politics. He came to remove the curse, remove sin and shame at great cost to himself. He's the one who came not to grasp power, but to lay down his life for his enemies. Not to crush his enemies with political power, but to lay down his life, to love them with mercy to shed his blood, to forgive them, to wash them of their sins and their guilt and their shame, to win them not by killing them or defeating them, but by suffering for them, to love those who hated him, to inaugurate a new kind of kingdom that would be sacrificial. Yes, even with blood. So if this Jesus is your king, and your savior, would you honor your king and his kingdom by living according to his values above political agendas and preoccupations and something better than the political cults of our time so that we could bless our neighbors and we could try to heal divisions and help create understanding and, and unity where there's disunity and where there's understanding instead of anger and cooperation where there's simply warfare and 
And then a better kind of righteousness, not a human, man-centered righteousness. Did you think about this? Our neighbors deeply, deeply need this. And it is part and parcel of following Jesus. So remember, this is our king and his kingdom. And let's follow him and bless our neighbors and not be stumbled by political cults. They'd be better than political, offer something more than political cults. A real kingdom that will last forever. Let's pray. I know it's a, not an easy message, Lord, to hear. <laughs> it certainly wasn't easy to give. Um, we pray, Lord, that there's every, every and I, I know I say this sometimes, but especially today, everything that is pure and right and true of the gospel would remain. Anything that is just foolish and of me would go away. And all that is from you, Lord. May your spirit convict of our, us of our heart and make us citizens of your kingdom, which will help us to be the best citizens of America, loving our neighbors, serving our neighbors, even people who may hate us, loving them and serving them just as you did for us when we were your enemies. Help us to be a deep blessing to our neighbors in this time of great anger and division. In Jesus' name, amen.